Today's episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Welcome, everyone, to the first bonus episode called Book Reports. My name is Adam, and I am joined by the Dungeon Master herself, or Dungeon Teacher? Wait, no. (laughs) Master (laughs) Teacher. There we go. Dungeon Teacher. Hey, kids, it's your Dungeon Teacher. (laughs) That sounds a a lot scarier. From the Master Teacher, as she likes to be called, Caitlin. How's it going, Caitlin? Hey, going great yeah nice to talk to you from the other room (laughs) i know we never we never get to talk so i know we talked about this a little bit in the prologue episode if you happen to have listened to that but the purpose of these episodes this isn't going to be a uh real play dungeons and dragons episode the idea of this is we're talking more about literature and Mm -hmm. the book that we just played through so, um, and I know a lot of our heart behind it when Caitlin and I were first starting talking about doing a podcast together, since Caitlin is an English teacher and we have a heart for writing and reading and storytelling, mm-hmm. I, we first thought about doing a literature podcast, but then it sounded a whole lot more fun to do a Dungeons and Dragons podcast. And so we just <laughs> merged that together with literature and made this goofy little podcast. Uh, but we still wanted to have some aspect of this show that revolved around literature and its importance and talking about that and educating people. And we have such a good resource in Caitlin as a, as a uh, high school English teacher, as a master's oh, degree in education. So learned, so wise <laughs> beyond her years and <laughs> such a good resource. And yeah, so... And since we just concluded the Frankenstein storyline that I hope you all finished, there shouldn't be too many spoilers in here if you're jumping around. But also, if you're jumping around, what kind of psychopath are you? Listen to the show in order, for God's sake. Go in a linear fashion. Exactly. Crazy mongrels. Mm. Don't want to do any accidental spoilies, but just in case, you should be all right. This is just about, this is more about the book Frankenstein, not the game. But we might Mm -hmm. dabble into both. So. I want to. I want to stop talking. I want to put Caitlin <laughs> in the hot spot since she's the one who has all the knowledge and wisdom. And I think where I want to start, I think there's no better place to start than Frankenstein, the book Frankenstein. Caitlin, <sighs> yes. I'm going to ask you questions as best I can, and I'm going to play uh, your student or John Q. Public, who might think okay. that. I don't really like reading that much. Or why is this book so important? Why do I hear it mm-hmm. talked about all the time? Mm-hmm. So I think that would be a good place to start. So Frankenstein, the history. Please tell <laughs> me about how it came about. And yeah, Mary Shelley and all that good stuff. Hey, yeah. Uh, you know, when you and I were first, you know, f- we figured out, hey, we want to do a podcast where we 
play Dungeons and Dragons, but we also weave in classic literature, um, you know, that is capable for us to use because it's old enough and therefore it's open for us to go into there without any copyright issues. Um, but we were trying to figure out, you know, what it, what is a good classic novel that people have definitely heard of, if not read. And we kept coming back to Frankenstein. Uh, mm-hmm. It's it's one of those stories that permeates uh, just pop culture. It permeates a lot of people's um, interests, and you know, even just like a lot of people will use that in their vernacular if they call refer to something as you know a Frankenstein, or they refer to something as looking like a Frankenstein. You kind of know that's like this mismatched monster creation that's abnormal or horrific to behold um, without ever having read the book yourself. So I, I thought that that would be a, a perfect gateway into this, um, that the audience would at least know a little bit about the story without yeah. ever even having read it. Yeah, you're totally right. I mean, I know that I was assigned it in high school and I'm pretty sure mm-hmm. like I did most books in high school, I probably read about the first two chapters and then Cliff noted the rest or Spark noted the rest. <laughs> but yeah, it's one of those books that has, it's just such a, pop culture phenomenon and it's like permeated all aspects and there's been so many movie iterations and parodies and it's Mm -hmm. yeah we I feel like a lot of us know about Frankenstein the story of Frankenstein but may not know that much I mean I, I I'm sure from you and you hear a lot about the people pointing out the common misconception that like Frankenstein is the is the creature when really Frankenstein is the doctor. And mm-hmm. I, I, I feel, I feel like that's always kind of one of the first things that's pointed out. It's like, Oh, actually by people who like point their glass, you know, <laughs> push their glasses back. And it's like, actually yeah, that's so Frankenstein's they, they hold, monster. That's they hold their goblet in one hand and swirl exactly. around its contents. Ex- like, oh, I know more than you, but <laughs> exactly. yeah, that, that is a common misconception. Frankenstein, you know, the name Frankenstein is actually Victor Frankenstein. The mad scientist um, mm-hmm. who wanted to achieve, you know, life after life, um, you know, reanimation. But when people usually say Frankenstein, they envision the monster instead. Um, right. Th- it is, there I, are, I, yeah. I guess Go it's ahead. just like, it's easier to say it that way. It's it's mm-hmm. more awkward to be like, that's Frankenstein's monster, <laughs> yeah, or just yeah, the yeah. monster. I guess mm-hmm. calling it Frankenstein just has a better ring to it. But um, and you're right. I think when when we were picking this book, I know. And we'll get to questions and answers later that people sent in uh, some questions asked, like, why did we start with Frankenstein? And I think you kind of hit on it. I think it's one of those books that if people haven't read, they at least know about it. And we were hoping Mm -hmm. that might be a hook. And Mm -hmm. there's just something inherently spooky and creepy and scary about the story of Frankenstein. So, yeah, it just seemed like a good place to throw our characters into, put them immediately, you know, in throw them in the deep end and out of their element with some spooky twists and turns that you could create. And it, it seemed like a fun playground, I'm sure, for you to to build around. It was. It was. And, and also just, you know, as a DM, you want to have, you know, a compelling story to move the characters forward into and, you know, a, a, a story that provides a hook. But also you, you want a monster at the end. You, you want, a, you know, kind the of like a final. Guy. Yeah, yeah you, you want that, that boss level. And, right. um, you know, it, it, it becomes, you know, this, this perfect conglomeration of the monster and the man put into, into one and exploring the themes that are in this, this pretty kick-ass story. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, yeah, it is a story that is often 
um, assigned usually uh, in senior year of high school. A lot of high schools, at least here in California, a lot of high schools will assign it for British literature. And oh, okay. a lot of senior years are British literature or just like British literature adjacent. Um, and so, yeah, unfortunately, because of that, <laughs> I understand. It's like I'm being assigned to this novel, so I really don't want to do it. Um, but there, there are a lot of cool facts about it that, that I would love to share. I mean, I'm, yeah, I'm, dive <laughs> into those facts. That's what we're here okay. for. Mm-hmm. We want the, the good stuff. So yeah, tell me about, I guess, you know, you know, the history of it, um, mm-hmm. who wrote it, what kind of like the era that it was in. Right. Yeah. So yeah, I'll give you some cool facts about it um, that, that I always like to yeah, share. Yeah, this the coolest. Ooh, this is where I turn my, my seat around and I sit on it backwards <laughs> and I'm the cool teacher. It's like, let me let rap me with rap, you kids. Let me rap with you kids. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, the very first cool thing to know about it, just the author, Mary Shelley, um, she wrote it when she was still a teenager. She was 18 when she began writing the book and it, it took her about two years to finish it and get it published all the way through. And so by the time she turned 20 years old, that was in 1818, um, it was finally published and put out. And at first she did it anonymously because for a woman to write a story like this was unheard of. Um, not only because it was a, a monster story and, uh, Honestly, it's it's the first science fiction novel. Um, it's often credited as the first science fiction novel ever written, um, it, because you know she int- introduces like this trope of the mad scientist. She introduces a lot of um, this melding of the supernatural and the world of science um, at this time, which was really not on the world stage uh, for a lot of publications. And so it was anonymous. Um, But her husband, Percy, who was another writer, um, Percy Shelley wrote the foreword to the book. And so because he wrote the foreword, a lot of people were like, ah, he must have written it. Hmm. Um, And it was a few years later when the popularity of the book picked up and they started doing like plays, um, like stage plays uh, about this story that she finally came out and said it was me and had it published under her name. Um, but think about that. She was 18 when she wrote this, which is. That's insane. In of itself. Yeah. And, and immediately makes me <laughs> yeah. loathe myself and the things that I was doing when I was 18. Uh, yeah. You, but you, she, she did a lot of, I mean, by the, I mean, she got married at 16. Um, you know, she, in fact, she, Percy, Percy Shelley um, was like a follower of her father. So her, Ooh, backing up. Um, just a few things that are cool about Mary Shelley. So her her mother and father, her parents were Mary Wollstonecraft, who was one of history's first feminist writers. Um, okay. And her father was William Godwin, and he was another. He was a British philosopher. Um, and so she she grew up, you know, surrounded by intellectuals. And so one of those that was kind of a, a follower of her father per se um, was Percy Shelley. And so sixteen years old, meet Shelley falls in love with him and her dad's like you're too young so she just ups and runs away with him so when she was just 16 she gets married to Shelley and instead of obeying her father you know she's taking a a bit of her you know out of uh, her mother's own book of listening to her own self and and being a bit of a a feminist at this time I guess Mm -hmm. Uh, but she would have rather have been 
disowned by her father. And so she left with Percy Shelley. They got married. They lived in like Switzerland and Germany for a few years. They they had four kids together, but only one of those four kids actually lived to adulthood. Uh, so her Mary Mary Shelley's kids. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. So her first her first daughter, um, her first Clara, her first kid, died at only six weeks old, and uh, she actually wrote in her journal this passage that I looked up. Um, but she wrote in her journal soon after Clara had passed away, um, quote. I dreamt that my little baby came to life again, that it had only been cold and that we rubbed it by the fire and it lived. I awake and find no baby. I think about the little thing all day. And this was um, written in her journal in the months immediately preceding her beginning to write Frankenstein. So you can even see her own grief and channeling that grief and that loss and considering what if somebody once dead could come back to life again. So putting like her own... Um, emotions and and that that was that was big in here um you know instead of instead of you know tamping down emotions um she was part of a writing movement that was big about bringing those emotions out and exploring them and well and and, oh man it's such a different way of reading it that even even bleaker gosh so she she lost her she lost her first child and Mm -hmm. and and kind of sounds like she was maybe exercising some grief and her own yeah, totally. trauma yeah. while writing this. Wow. I didn't yeah. Know that. So, so that, that is a strong argument that maybe she was drawing upon grief and the wish to bring someone back to life. And then on the other hand, she also like took from stuff that she experienced in her travels. She and she and Percy Shelley traveled widely across Europe um, in their early years of marriage. They even visited the actual Castle Frankenstein. That's a real place. It's it's off the oh. Rhine River in Germany. Um, oh. and, and, and yeah, and local legends of this castle of this frankenstein castle was was it called was frankenstein is that where the name comes castle from? castle frankenstein oh yeah, it's wow a real place. okay um frankenstein, frankenstein but it's yeah, right. <laughs> there there's so according to local legends surrounding this castle there was an like an unbalanced alchemist that once lived there um by an awesome name conrad dipple <laughs> so not conrad that's a hell of a name i know conrad dipple Apparently, this dude lived there, and while he was there, he just was obsessed with creating this elixir that would allow people to live more than 100 years. Um, and in doing so, he went to the local graveyard, and you know, according to lore, he dug up bodies and experiment on, experimented on them to try and create this elixir, which he, called, which he dubbed Dipple's Oil. So you could see easily, like, Mary Shelley, like, picking, you know, from her own personal life experiences from local lore, even coming across that name. So it's, it's pretty cool that you're, you're seeing how a person's hodgepodge of a life came into this uh, story that has sparked so many movies, so many just bits and pieces of phantasmagoric uh, right. imagination. You, you mentioned earlier about her kind of creating this sci-fi genre and Mm -hmm. even I guess what's even more rare I guess was that or more significant is that it was a female writer who did it can you tell Mm -hmm. me like that kind of genre and a woman I mean I guess even even taking the the woman aspect out of it the female aspect out of it was Mm -hmm. this genre kind of looked down upon or this writing about monsters and science fiction was it very like undignified so i wondered is even more so a woman writing that if 
what her peers thought of her or other people and writing about these crazy things as a woman or and just in this weird genre. Yeah, yeah. It it's it is fascinating to look at. It wasn't dubbed science fiction at all. It's it's kind of now that we know science fiction so well we can look back. Gotcha. Yeah, retros you know, retrospectively, she was the first to come up with a lot of this. And so nowadays we would consider Frankenstein to be a uh a just a classic science fiction piece of literature. But at the time actually it was instead part of a larger movement um, of romanticism. Uh, and so romanticism was this, this school of thought that encapsulated arts, like in music, in painting, um, and of course in literature. And romanticism emphasized, you know, supernatural elements. It emphasized emotions. It emphasized imagination over reason. And so within this, larger framework of romanticism you saw like this subset of writers that kind of wanted to explore the darker side of our emotions the darker side of of the inner truth of man um using those uh mm -hmm. fantastical elements to yeah 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 have a deeper undercurrent of like something they were going through or grief like in, like like maybe in her exactly. case with her children right exactly yeah and so they were dark romantics but many of us now would know them by another name um they were gothic writers and so gothic literature um so we we know a lot of uh, famous monster stories that came out of this such as dracula or dr jekyll and mr hyde or even edgar Allan poe's many works so she she was one of the few female writers within this uh specific subset and um yeah, the, these at first were not seen as like high literature. Gothic literature was um, something that explored parts of people that they didn't really want to look at, uh, mm -hmm. parts of people that, that, you know, were based on fear. And, you know, you, you have heightened emotions, and, but, you know, somebody isn't just angry. They are so obsessed that they would kill over a lost love. They aren't just sad. They are depressed and in the throes of anguish that they would waste away. They aren't just um, they aren't just feeling sort of off. They're crazy and they're lunatics and their mind is completely unhinged. Um, so they, you know, they were fascinated with how can we stretch people's emotions. And they were also interested in, uh, you know, romantics were interested in fairy stories, in, in fairy tales. I mean, this is where you have the Brothers Grimm. This is where you have Hans Christian Andersen earlier on um, gathering local folklore and then compiling it and, and selling it. And so the dark romantics, the gothics were like, well, we're interested in fairy stories, but we're interested in like the darker supernatural ghost parts of fairy stories. And we're in, in fact, we're going to create our own um, by hodgepodging together local fol folklore as well. And so you can see that in stories like Frankenstein. And so you're saying that, so, I mean, I don't, it's impossible to know every single piece of literature <laughs> at the time, but it sounds like, at least from what, from what I'm hearing, it sounds like Mary Shelley helped kickstart this whole new Mm -hmm. style of writing and mm -hmm. you know looking back on it now a genre of writing and launched these other kind of famous pieces of, of of art and literature that we now know and so 
How long did it take for her to get her her due, I guess? You said that maybe at the time it wasn't acknowledged as something, uh, maybe a piece of art that was dignified maybe in culture, but now obviously it is and it's taught everywhere. You know, it didn't take long for it to um, gain popularity. Um, It just, it was one of those where it was more pop culture, you know, poppy and it was popular um but it wasn't considered like highbrow literature so it was you know widely accepted in a general st- you know in a general sense but it wasn't one of those where it's just like oh yes i'm going to be teaching this at the college you know it, so, it would so be more- something kind of like the marvel movies or something like that where yeah, it, it's yeah. pulpy and the mass audience loves it but maybe the hoity-toity critics are like totally, oh how, yeah how yeah. lowbrow and and often I could even I could even make a, a cogent argument that we wouldn't have this idea of the superhero without the idea of the supervillain as made possible in these monster stories. Right. So, well, I mean, uh, Incredible Hulk is very much a Doctor Jekyll mm-hmm. and Hyde storyline. Yes, line. it is. Yeah, so it, many it, actually, that's right. what it is. He he took the story of Doc. Uh, so the the right. creation of of the Incredible Hulk is the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's a fan fiction of that. Um, and then he, he, you know, pop cultured it and made it more relevant right. to the, the time and age that they were in. But we, we have just through Gothic literature, through these monster stories um, and these ghost stories, we have the precedent for later on what could be considered like, instead of supernatural elements, they would be superhuman Superhero. elements. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Man, so gosh, it's it's crazy how it's it's so bizarre even thinking of like a new genre, like someone start starting a new genre and how mm-hmm. that just spins off and continually permeates now like the culture and we're just so used to it. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I I think to keep this short, because I don't want to go too long, because I'm sure we could just keep talking about this book. <laughs> I think, I mean, I could teach a whole course on this. Book, oh, I'm so sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, I, sure I'm having to like hold myself back. There's so many cool. I would say like just look up stuff about Mary Shelley. Mary Shelley is one of those um, rock stars of a writer from the 1800s that like you could, you could hear so many about her and just totally believe it. Just, she's one of those that have so many urban legends about her. And uh, do you, you know, can you think of one? Can you, do you know one off the top of your head? Yeah. Uh, she, she apparently like one of the urban legends about her is that she lost her virginity to Percy Shelley um, on the grave of an ex like an ex-boyfriend or something like that. But there, there are enough of her personal writings to know that she did, in fact, <laughs> consummate her marriage to Percy Shelley in a graveyard. I do know that. Really? I, yeah, just, just gothic chick all the way around, just creepy, baddie chick. She just chick went dark. It. She just leaned into it. <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah. what's the creepy way we can do this? Oh, I know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, so to finish up maybe this section, to summarize everything you've said, Mm-hmm. If you, Caitlin, English teacher, master teacher, are trying mm. to convince someone to read Frankenstein, like if I come up to you and I say, why this book? Why should I read this? Why is this so important? And I guess I'm just curious, like, what would you say to someone or to maybe convince them of why they should read Frankenstein? I mean, of course, I would try to tailor it to whoever's asking me, but in the most general sense, I would say that if you want to read a story um, that was written by a woman and began the science fiction genre, then you need to read Frankenstein. 
Is that why it's taught in classes? Is that why is that why it's so significant, or is it because of everything that it like launched and started? And I think like, it's because of how it launched so many things, but it, it also just the the manner of which it was written. It's it it changes. It's it's, it's written as like a series of letters uh, from a brother to his sister. And even that format of telling a story at the time was newer. So she she started a lot of things. She she started a, a lot of new trends within her writing. Um, so she was a trendsetter, I guess. Right. Uh, she started a lot of trends. She started in the her trend piece. of ha- yeah, having so sex could, on a, like, having tr- sex in a graveyard. Like she started <laughs> that new trend too. Oh yeah, so hot. No, but she yeah. So she started. You know, she she began like a new format of writing. She started. Um, you know, this, this new monster genre, she began pursuing, like, how can we take this local folklore and serialize it? Uh, so she, she did a lot in one work. And mm. so, you know, you do have great pieces of literature coming out of this time frame. I mean, it, there are so many good stories from the early 1800s of Gothic literature but a lot of them don't have a lot of firsts that are aligned with them. Right. I think to connect it to something that I know more about, which is film, and I'm sure this will be the first of a pattern that I bring up every time when we talk about this, going back to what I know, mm-hmm. I think whenever you talk about the classics and and why they're so great, when someone watches them now, or in this case, reads them now, it's so a- easy to be like, oh, what's the big deal? Oh, that, I've seen that a million times now. Oh, that's so slow and boring. But mm-hmm. I think what you really need to do in all art forms, on all mediums, is try and put yourself back into that place when it was written. Yeah. And then when you see that, like, nothing was written like this at the time. Nothing, mm-hmm. no one did this, this kind of genre or, or played with these themes or, or had these things that are now tropes and are, are, are probably even considered cliche now at this point. But those things have to start somewhere. And it sounds like with Mary Shelley and with Frankenstein, she started so many things that now mm-hmm. if we read it, it would be like, oh, I've seen that a million times, copycatted. But you need to realize that at the time and in the context, what nothing else was like that. And it was so unique. And you do, you see the foundation of so many things that we know now, like superheroes and other things that you were mentioning. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's kind of what I like about these kind of conversations, talking to you and even when I talk about other pieces of art, it's great to remember the context and to get that information and to get it from a source who knows these things like you, this uh, makes it so much more interesting and makes it, I, I feel like maybe, maybe my, I'm sure my teachers probably tried to do that in school. And I'm sure I was just <laughs> bored and that kind of jerk kid who just didn't care. But I wish I could have had the context or at least given a damn about the context to know what made it so great. Um, yeah. And I, I totally get that because it's, it's, once again, this is uh, for many of the classics. Sometimes they're thrust upon you, and and you're forced right. to read it, and so you don't. And want you're forced to. to read it while doing eight other subjects, and you have to finish yeah, it by like next it. Friday. And right, so it's if, not if the best. It's you, not the best yeah. way to read, as opposed to. <laughs> so, if any of you reading. listening to this, if you could like hear us talking about this and then read it by choice, you'll like it. I mean, yeah, it, exactly. It, it, I love stories that show 
how nebulous and gray a lot of the areas of morality are, the stories that make you question who who is the actual monster here and who is the actual antagonist because right. you think you know who it is when you start this story and it just flips it on its head and by the end you're like I I can actually sympathize with the monster more so than I can sympathize with the man. Right, it pl- it plays with expectations and mm-hmm. even like the prejudices that you might bring as the reader bring yeah. into it and twisting that mm-hmm. makes it so mm-hmm. exciting. So, taking that You've convinced me, and I'm sure everyone else, to go read Frankenstein. Um, <laughs> so well done. Uh, to pivot off of that and taking aspects mm-hmm. of Frankenstein, Frankenstein, and now with our gameplay that we just went through in, uh, mm-hmm. of Mice and Men and Monsters and the five episodes, I think it was, of Frankenstein, I just thought it'd be a fun little section for people who have read Frankenstein already in the past or are going to read it to hear... Um, as you were creating this storyline and this campaign that we just went on, mm-hmm. what are some Easter eggs that you, when you were crafting this, took from the book, elements you took and planted them in the game that maybe people didn't even realize, or maybe Easter eggs that people who did know could be like, oh, I recognize that from Frankenstein. <laughs> yeah, well, in prepping for this, uh, I, I reread it. That's I'm doing that for every single book we're going to go through is I'm rereading the books. Um, and, you know, for some of them, I'm going to have to skim more than others. But I, w- I would keep track and uh, of direct quotes from the book. And I, I would have that on a separate document uh, so that I would have chances to in my narration or just lines that I'm having prepared for certain non-player characters or NPCs to say. Um, I would have that straight from the story. So. All, you know, for all three of you, when I was first introducing when Bertram would come on the screen or um, Awen or Penelope, for all three of those narrations, they were actually mixes of words straight from Mary Shelley. And then I would tweak when I needed so that it fit the scenario that you were in. Uh, but yeah, it, it, I'm taking words straight from there. Um, even name. So it. With the exception of Millie, because I already kind of created Millie in my head before we decided on Frankenstein, Mm. because I wanted her to be like a a throughway to uh, the next adventure. Right. Um, Not every single person. Not every single thing. No, but every other character. Every other person was. Every other character was a name from the novel. Felix? Uh, Felix is and a safety? character in there, yeah, and Safi, yeah, oh, okay. they're all character names in there. So you know, there, there's a, a maybe some people will recognize the scene where the the monster comes across like this blind man, this old blind man, um, and so he actually has like a son and a daughter and his son's fiance, and that's Felix and Safi oh, okay. and Agatha, and so that's where oh, you Agatha, see yeah. those names come in. So um, it's pretty cool that like, I'm, you know, for certain NPCs that you guys kind of lock on to, especially because some NPCs, I don't know who you're really going to latch on to and others, right. I will have that planned. And so they might carry on like there are NPCs who, you know, their names have to do with Frankenstein and yet we'll see them beyond here. Um, oh, OK. So, yeah, I, yeah. And, I'm, and I, I just remember. I think Millie was talking when we when we met up with Millie inside uh-huh. the maze, uh-huh. and she was with with people. And she's like, "Oh, there was Mary, and there was Shelley, and they <laughs> yeah. and they got killed by that." 
Yeah. So I was like, that's yeah, so what I, I know. I know that yeah, reference. Yeah, I listed. <laughs> yay. I know the twins. Uh, so I, I listed down names. I mean, you can, you would think, you know, with, with Dungeons and Dragons, you need to make up you know, cool, fantastical names that right. stand out. But I'm reading some of these stories, even for the next novel that we're doing. Uh, I'm like, th- these names are just writing themselves. I don't even have to come up with them. Some of them are just awesome. Uh, so I, I don't have to really think about, what am I going to call this NPC? It's already Yeah, that probably makes me. it a lot yeah. easier. So do you just have mm-hmm. a list of like names? Like, so when you're reading mm-hmm. and you come across a name that you like, you just kind of write it down. And exactly. so then when you're crafting yeah. a story, like, hey, I'll just pull this name that I liked a exactly. lot. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, when, you, when you first come in there, the name of the town, Geneva, that is where uh, Frankenstein lives, Victor Frankenstein. So that's okay. where the story mostly takes place is in a place called Geneva. Um, you, you have even um, the tavern that you guys go to. Those are the first three words of the novel, Dear Sister, Dear Sister Margaret, because it, he's it's it's the Captain Walton is is writing to his sister um, who's back home in England. Uh, so the owner of this tavern, Dear Sister Margaret, is Captain Walton, who is a former okay. captain. So it, it yeah, so it fits in that way. Um, I mean, naturally, of course, making sure <laughs> bodies are reanimated. Right, right, right. <laughs> what about some of the there. what about some of the rooms? Like there was like a teardrop and like yes, I'm trying to think yes. what all the rooms like are even mm-hmm. I, I guess I'm I'm reaching for things like even like the darts. I mean that, that might be way too obscure, but oh, what were some you know, other the- uh no okay so yes they're so Maybe they could have played darts in a parlor room at some point could, i don't I, I mean know. yeah no they could i i would do something stupid like that so no that wasn't that so one of the bylines through or one of the through lines in your adventure is that this really sad elven woman keeps popping up and you know you find out who she is but in the story that is uh in the yeah, so in the story, Victor Frankenstein has a childhood friend um, that he later grows up to love, and then they get married, um, but doesn't go too well for her. Mm. And so you you have this woman, Elizabeth, and so I wanted to have that uh, through line and that there was someone who Victor Frankenstein loved and was married to, but something tragic happened to her, and that is like plaguing him. Right. And perhaps even has, what has driven him mad or driven him over the brink. Uh, and so I wanted to kind of keep giving hints the entire time for that. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. What was it like for you? You're building a story. You're creating this story. You're creating NPCs and other characters for us to either talk to or fight with. But I know an important aspect of D&D is, is picking the, you know, the class and the race of these people. What was it like mm-hmm. for you taking existing characters and trying to fit them into a D&D structure? How did you take those things and, how, and what influenced you to choose what you did for each character? Right. I kind of saw like, what, what purpose are you serving in the story? And, you know, do you have a job in the story? Do you, do you have, you know, a big moment in the story? And then I would try and create a class from that. Uh, Just picking what the, was like closest to it, like what would be the closest parallel yeah. or equivalent. Yeah, exactly. And so the the only character that I actually for this uh, adventure, the only character other than Millie, of course, but the only character that had to do with Frankenstein that I actually created a a class for was Victor Frankenstein, um, which you know they have a class in Dungeons and Dragons that perfectly you know matches up 
machinery and gears and science, you know, typical just lab science things with magic. And that is an artificer. So that is what I, I decided to choose as Victor Frankenstein's class. As for the others, I didn't think I needed to uh, really a, give a them class. a class or go in depth or anything because well, I didn't well, know exactly there, how you guys would interact with them. Right. I guess, you, yeah, I guess you didn't need to give yourself that much information that might not even be explored. But right. in, in The Dear Sister Margaret, we meet Millie and Agatha and Safi, and you made them Aarakocra or Aarakocra, bird people. What... Is there any reason or rhyme or reason why you chose that? Or is it like, does it just sound funny to you? Or is there anything about their character in the book that made it seem like a good fit for that? Uh, some of the characters I did for the Aarakocras, I just, I wanted to make it clear when you came into this tavern that you saw a wide array, a wide mix of backgrounds, a wide not just Not just 30 humans. Yeah, and so I thought that just some of them, some of the more like outwardly different looking than human would work well. And I also wanted to make sure that they weren't all the same as the three of you. You okay. know, that there weren't uh, Warforged or a lot of High Elves or a lot of humans. You wanted to show like the, diver- the diversity in mm-hmm. this world. Yeah. yeah. And so I honestly just thought what, what might be fun here. Um, as for. I I thought that as for Victor Frankenstein, I mean he 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 was the one that I spent the longest on character design because so much hinges on him. Um but to get this like idea of the person who who seems like the creator and you know you get like this kind of like playing god aspect of Dr. Frankenstein in the novel. And so you have this race in uh, Dungeons and Dragons. This is going to be a spoily if you haven't listened to it, but shame on ye. Go yeah, back exactly. and listen. Pause it right do here. It Go back and do finish it. Do it now. Do it. Do it. <laughs> but the perfect one I thought for that would be the race of people who are descended from celestials, those who are almost godlike or, or angel-like mm-hmm. um, in, in their uh, manner. So I, I made him an ASMR or ASMR. <laughs> is it, it, is it pronounced a, a, AS, ASMR? I've heard, I've since, I looked that up. There, there were several things where I'm like, how do you pronounce this? And so I saw both ASMR and ASMR, um, but it's oh, okay. A-A-S-I-M-A-R. Uh, so it's, it's just those who... They are one race mixed with celestial, and so they're they're heavenly or angelic looking, and I thought that that would be so awesome. And I wanted him to be long lived, so I made him half elf, you know, half oh, elf, okay. full well, partially high elf and partially uh, celestial. So that is like an ASMR high elf. Um, so I wanted him to be you know around for a long time instead of like the typical. They're they're a human, so they're they're maximum thirty years really to be at this. You know, I wanted him to be right. hundreds of years old, right? Uh, but you know, for his, everything about him would be looking unassuming. So when you first see him, he seems you know very bookish and very awkward, kind of like Snape. <laughs> yeah. But I but I also wanted him to be like you know I, I don't describe him as as Snape. I describe him more like he's just unassuming, but you know, angelic looking. Uh-huh. And then when he reveals his full form then you really see like the glory behind that and just like the shining, you know, mm. part of him. But you, you realize that that's flipped on its head, that he is anything but 
holy that he you know right. what he's doing is very unholy very uh very monstrous so against, against the laws of nature yeah, yeah just mm-hmm. like twisting yeah. that yeah one of my favorite things that you did when crafting this is that you took actual lines from the book and mm-hmm. gave those as lines for or even like if it's dialogue or if it was just narration mm-hmm. i loved how it just it it, it made Although the things that you wrote yourself were very beautiful in themselves and, and, and really painted this picture of this, of this world that you're creating, but it just gave it a little bit of extra oomph. And I felt like it perfectly embodied what we're trying to do of combining D&D mm-hmm. and literature. Mm-hmm. And so I guess what I'm, oh, I wanted to ask was, did you have a favorite line or two that you took straight from the book yes. and either gave to a character or, or just said to set the stage of the world or a room we were in yeah one of them um one of them is is spoken by frankenstein's monster in the novel but in this i had frankenstein's uh victor frankenstein speak it because in this he he and the monster are kind of one in their Mm. actions um and so it is you hate me but your abhorrence cannot equal that with which i regard myself and so it's just like you, mm. you, you, I thought that so perfectly encapsulated how like this evil that this character is doing, he just seems, he, he feels like I'm so far gone. I'm so far fallen. There's no coming back from it. And so everything you're throwing at me, I hate on myself as well. It was a way, so kind of like you mentioned earlier with the book itself that Mary Shelley wrote, it was, it wasn't so strictly black and white of good and evil mm-hmm. there was a gray yeah. that the characters were in and and mm-hmm. yeah i remember when we met dr frankenstein in the in the the final room the bo- the boss level uh <laughs> yeah. you're just so ready to be like because uh, a lot of dungeons and dragons that i've played and certainly not all D is this and it can be very complex and and nuanced in its writing as well but some of them are very simply like i'm evil and i'm good and i appreciated mm-hmm. how and i think i walked into there getting ready to fight and roll my ones and twos like I do. And I, I think <laughs> I was I was ready to be like, you're evil. Let's kill you. And there was some there was some deep sadness uh in the in the dialogue that you gave him and in his mannerisms. And even at the very end, again, spoiler, spoiler alert. Spoiling. At the end, when he's under the rubble and he's like, please help me, you know, you you once I think he was talking to Awen and trying to convince mm-hmm. him to help mm-hmm. him and I, I would have I, I could have understood if Aaron chose to have Awen go save him or or something like that. And even I think yeah. even Kimmy had uh Penelope say, like, should we do this? There there Yeah, it, is this who we are? Yeah. Even after everything terrible that he did, you still felt something for him. And I just appreciated mm-hmm. the way that you again, taking from Mary Shelley, but you taking that and and fitting that into Oh Ma'am Ma'am and just making him feel more complex as a character, I really appreciated. Great. I mean, that sounds awesome because that's exactly how you feel when you read the story. I mean, you, you feel that this, this monster, both of them, both the, the creation and the creator, both of them at the end you would consider a monster, and they have done these horrific deeds, and yet for both of them you feel such like sympathy mm-hmm. that you can't condemn them completely. Right. Did you have any other uh, excerpts from the book that you just want to mention that you that some of your favorites? 
I, I, I just her words to describe um, just the nature and, you know, this, this once again, it, gothic literature is still part of romanticism and romanticism praised and was in awe of nature. And, you know, it thought that, you know, we, we become our truer, better selves when we are away from the city and away from other people and go into nature. Um, and so here there's this thing that I use to describe uh, the outside of the castle as you guys are fleeing it, you know, kind of just like even in that, that crazy hectic moment, there's still mm, beauty mm-hmm. there in the carnage. And so it, it, the quote directly from the book is, in the meanwhile, also the black ground was covered with herbage and the green banks interspersed with innumerable flowers, sweet to the scent and the eyes, stars of pale radiance among the moonlight woods. It's like, ugh. Just like there's yeah, there's such a beauty. Love the poetry of that yeah, line. there's there's a beauty in the darkness. Like there's mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I love that. Okay, so we've talked about the book for our last section. Uh, I was hoping that we could always conclude these these book reports with a little Q and A session from fans. Thank you so much, yeah, yeah, everyone yeah, yeah. who reached out and asked yeah, us questions. Very, very We're much. so appreciative. We're not going to be able to get to every single one, but we might try and uh, use some for later. And if you're listening to this and you have a question about the characters or the game or how to be a dungeon master or anything or literature, anything else in between, please email us at omamamshow at gmail.com or reach out to us on Twitter and Instagram. We would love to just answer your questions and interact with you guys. So here and the, are... the handles for those are also at Omamam oh, oh, Show. Show. Yeah, just thank you. keeping it the same all across the board. Keeping it the same. So again, thank you so much for everyone who reached out with a question. We got a question from Bill who wants to know, how as DM, Dungeon Master, did you approach melding D&D roleplay with literature? I so one one of the ways I have in like the in-betweens and even just telling people about this podcast that it it's a lot like a fan fiction where you mm. take a famous, you know, work and you utilize its themes, its setting, its plot points, its characters, but you make something new from it. You you put your own twist on it. It's like and you're given I, a I, playground I, with like a bunch of pieces totally. to play with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's exactly how I'm approaching this, where I see each adventure as sort of a fan fiction of that, that classic work. So this adventure that you guys just partook in was a fan fiction of Frankenstein, really. Right. But I, so I, you know, I read through the, the story um, as I'm crafting it. I'm picking out characters, I'm picking out plot points, I'm taking direct quotes, and I'm compiling them. So that when I'm planning out, for in this case, like rooms or um, interactions or, you know, dropping larger hints as to what's really going on behind the scenes in this castle, uh, that I could take it straight from the book. And so that the narration that you guys hear, where it's just me reading, either me setting the stage or or me describing, you know, the room or a, a... a clue that you pick up that it is kind of 50 50. Like I always start off with the author's own writing, Mary Shelley, and then I intersperse it with my own words so that it fits the scene. This, this might be a super lame comparison, but it sounds like a really dignified version of Mad Libs where you have, (laughs) where you're writing it 
And it's like, and then they have to go in here. Okay, I need a noun or I need a person. Okay, I'll take this character from the story. And now I need uh, a setting. Okay, I'll take this room from the book. So it sounds like you, when you're writing this, you kind of know a lot of the bigger plot points that you need to do. Mm-hmm. But when you have gaps in something, you can just throw in an element right, from yeah. the book. Yeah, I, I always, uh, so I can say I always, because now I've done, at this point, I've written two adventures. And I will write the plot points of the adventure first. So I will come up with the, the skeleton of it and, you know, the, the major events that I want to happen. Then I'll read the story and then I will, you know, find details from the story that will fit those plot points and kind of fit them in there and sometimes even bend the plot points I came up with beforehand. So it fits mm-hmm. the story a little bit more and it's it's truer to it because I do want it to, you know, if 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 you guys do read Frankenstein, you know, after this or just dabble in it a little bit. Um, that there will be parts of the story that are familiar to you because you have listened to our podcast, but nothing, nothing really big is given away or it's not like, oh, well, I've read this before. Like it's, it's, right. it's similar enough. So the world feels familiar and kind of cozy to you, but it's still its own story. Yeah. It's still like a, a only like a, a jumping off point almost to a certain degree or it's, I like what you said. I, that was so great what you just said about how it, it, it makes it already feel a little cozy and already kind of lived in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Or you, you're familiar with mm-hmm. enough elements that might pique your interest and keep you moving forward because mm-hmm. of what you've see, of, of heard in the game. But I'm sure it's probably difficult also for you because finding the balance between Oh Ma'am Ma'am being the most important part and that being the driving force because that's going to cut through so many books along the way. Mm-hmm. But then trying to bend this classic literature around it, but you can't like what the story you told wasn't Frankenstein. There was elements about it right, and there was things right. in it, but it wasn't Frank, which, which makes it fresh for people who want to go read it. But I'm sure it's also kind of hard because you're like, oh, but the book is so good and I'm barely scratching <laughs> yeah. the surface and only using a little uh, bit yeah, of the elements. It, it, yeah, it, it's very tempting to be like, oh, but I can fit this in, I can fit this. And it's like, well, we, we do want to keep it a decent time frame for us to record. We want to keep it, you know, also not get lost in the woods. And every story is going to be different. You know, the next story. So at this time, if you have been up to date with your listening um, and you have listened to the end of the Frankenstein adventure and it leads into the next one, maybe you have pieced together. The next book is Moby Dick by Herman Melville. So I had to go through Mel- uh, Moby Dick, and that is a different beast. It's still a dark romantic writer. It's still within the same school, so it was easier to transition into. But there, there, are, there. Are, well, we'll talk about it in the book report about that. But just I had to approach that a little bit differently because knowing, hey, I only have so much time. But also, I am reading this for a different purpose so i'm having mm-hmm. to like kind of go through it in a in a more methodical way as if i'm like researching it versus i'm just sitting here to just enjoy it exactly um, yeah. so all that being said if you have your own book report or an assignment or a test do not use oh ma'am ma'am as a substitute for reading it <laughs> no. because you will fail that test this is not yeah. that book and a, then a, Frankenstein grew wings at the end. Exactly. Like, the teacher's like, what are you smoking? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, James wants to know, will these characters continue to move on from classic to classic? Or will you be building a rogues gallery of sorts for each story? And if so, 
Do you plan to bring back your already existing characters for cameos or entire arcs to build an overarching universe? So when we first were conceiving of this idea, I used the phrase with our friends like, oh, it's a series of one shots. Um, but that that's actually not what this is. And realizing like a one shot is a self-encapsulated story where the characters you use for that, their story ends at the end of the time you play. Yeah, there's a beginning, and, end, and then it's done. Mm-hmm, no more. Yeah. Right. And it's, it's meant to be done, like one shot done. Um, and that's not what this is. Instead, it is you're, you're following these three characters as long as they're alive. And my job as a DM, my, my job as their dungeon master Don't kill is to challenge them enough to make them think they're going to die, but actually not kill them unless they suck on their rolls like Adam. And then I really yeah. have to be sweating over here as dungeon master. <laughs> um, but no, the, the idea is we're going to be following... Penny, Awen, and Bertram um, as they go from adventure to adventure, and each adventure will be based on a different piece of classic literature. And that could be novels, it could be essays, it could be uh, short stories or poetry. I'm trying to even branch into some plays. So we're, we're mm-hmm. looking at all types of inspiration for it, but they will be uh, the same characters over and over again. And then we'll have some recurring yeah. NPCs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that might span multiple stories mm-hmm. like you might see right. uh yeah maybe the whale from moby dick will pop up in some dickens some <laughs> dickens like, novel. hi guys <laughs> hi hi guys i'm back <laughs> <laughs> uh from megan what advice do you have for players that feel like they have trouble loosening up and getting into the story mm. so i guess this sounds more like an advice just in general for for D&D or maybe just role-playing games. What if, yeah, yeah, what yeah, advice any, do you have for players just, who might... It's just like, because it, it is a lot of improv and you have to jump in and play a different character and be goofy, silly, and, and really get into it. Yeah, what advice do you have people who... It's, it's hard for them or maybe seems daunting or scary or they just can't mm-hmm. sh- get loose for that. Yeah, get loose. Yeah, I, I understand like how daunting that idea is to come into a tabletop role-play game mm-hmm. and you feel like you have to be on. Uh, so th- there are, yeah, I-, I have a few suggestions for that. The first one I would suggest on the part of the dungeon master to facilitate this is to have a space of time before you actually start playing to kind of just give your players space to slip into their character's skin. So for us, you know, just having 15 minutes to just chat and uh, practice our voices and, uh, you know, go over, oh yeah, what, what happened last time? Or what'd you think of this? And, and just kind of also shoot the breeze and talk a bit and just kind of crack jokes and be silly so that you can let your guard down a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I found that very easy. And also just as a way to check in with everyone, it's, it's also good to, you know, realize you can put, you can try and separate you, the player, from your character, but sometimes it's hard to do that, especially if life is going crazy, um, you know, outside of the game. And so to have a space also to check in um, with your players to, you know, talk to the players and be like, hey, you know, what are your highs and your lows this week? Or, you know, how's life going? How can I support you in that? And giving them the space to say, hey, like, this happened yesterday and I'm not okay. And to prioritize that over mm. like, no, we need to play this game and we need to win it. Cause yeah. <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons is a game that you're like, I have to win it. It's, it's more like you're, you're collaboratively 
telling a story, telling a story yeah. but you're also building relationships with people. Um, so I, I would suggest that having that space at the very beginning. So if you're a player and you're not really having that built in there, maybe asking your dungeon master, can we try this out? Mm-hmm. Um, I, th- I think uh, also as a player, I've never, I've never DM'd, but I have played a few characters now. And I think kind of what Caitlin was hitting on, I think having time beforehand definitely helps loosen you up and get you a little more comfortable, mm-hmm. get you talking and gets you used to the environment. Um, I think you really need to know the space and the storyline and your characters and their history. You really need to put in the research and the time. Uh, mm-hmm. And that might seem daunting and like, Oh God, I gotta do all, I do all this stuff. And to a certain degree, I mean, it's, it's as much as you want to do and as much as you want to put in, but like so many things you get, you get back what you put in. And if I show up and I have to improv a scene and someone asks me like Bertram about where he's been or what he wants or mm-hmm. where he's going. It's not going to ring true if I don't know where he's already been. And I don't know yeah. how he would react to certain situations. If I don't know what he has in his bag, you know, those are kind of like how Caitlin has a bag of, of things to play with in the larger world of telling the story. Each character also has their own things they're playing with. And the more you know them and, and their history and just what's going on in the story, it makes it easier to improv because nothing's scarier than going in and you have to improv and, you know, try and be funny or serious or dramatic mm-hmm. and try and drive the story forward when you don't know what's going on or you don't even know who you are. You're not going to contribute yeah. much. And so knowing your character, knowing other characters and knowing, I, I know Caitlin gave me some advice when, uh, for another game we're playing a couple months back and it was like she would for each character we're playing with she would either have an ongoing conversation that 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 happened in the past with that one character or you know some kind of drama or like I want to get something from this character and so you you knew every so every time you find yourself in a situation with one of those characters you have something to talk about you mm-hmm. have something to push it forward because if you're just mm-hmm. sitting and saying oh look at that candle it's blue oh that's cool and you just sit there like that's not <laughs> that's, that's, that's real not riveting interesting. Stuff. That's not dramatic. <laughs> what's what's dramatic is relationships and fears and desires and having goals. So the more you know that, the more you know your character, the more you can just dive in and play and have fun. And and going back to what I said earlier, again, I, I think I've found this out in so many other situations in life. But the moment you put something in and put it out there you're going to get something back like so much more. If you're on the sideline and you dip a toe in every now and then and you're kind of bored, well, it's going to be boring because you're not contributing and you're not laughing and you're not putting yourself out there. And yeah, it is. I don't want to minimize. It is vulnerable, which is something mm-hmm. that, that a beer or a cocktail can help with if you're of age. I know I usually have a beer when we're playing just because it helps loosen up a little bit. Um but even more importantly, it's just being comfortable. And if you're not comfortable, then you're not going to, you're not going to have fun in general. Uh, mm-hmm. And yeah, you just, it, it's a shame that people need to realize that if you put yourself out there and as vulnerable as that seems, as, as, as that is, if you're with if you're playing with people that you're comfortable with and are your friends or family or, or whatnot, it's a, it should be a safe space. And I think that kind of goes back to Caitlin, what you were saying about talking to the DM or being honest with other players. And mm-hmm. if it's a safe space and you feel comfortable in the vulnerability, then you'll realize how much fun it is. 
Yeah. So I, I, I have a second thing that I would suggest for players that they can specifically do. Um, and this is also a, a life tip, but just coming up with uh, what is one goal that you have for yourself as a player? Like what is something that I, today I want to get out of this game? Do I want to be silly? Do I want to have, uh, you know, a, a solo moment where I can, you know, soliloquize or I can, you know, have my own monologue? Do I want to try something that scares me, right? So what, what's something that you want to try for yourself, the player, so that's something to push you on? And, and just focusing on that one goal. Um, and then also forming one goal for your character. Um, you know, you... you you can, of course, do more than one, but of course, if if this is more of you taking baby steps and getting used to this, then just try. Like, what is one goal that my character will have for this session? Do they want to confront a, another character, you know, and have a heart to heart? Do they want to, since they're a rogue, do they want to pickpocket something? Uh, do they want to share a detail from their past? Do they want to make a move on another character and get a little romantic? Mm-hmm. Uh, but if, if, you, if you just keep it simple to start off with, what is one goal that you, the player, have and what is one goal that your character might have, then if you have nothing else, then at least you can focus on those two things and be more likely to achieve it and take those baby steps to get more comfortable. And that might be it. It's just like, hey, my one goal is to say something funny and to share something from my past. Okay, then I will at least have maybe two moments in here where I will get to practice my role playing and practice talking. And then that might be it. You need to be honest with yourself. Where is your emotional energy coming from that day? And some days it might be high, some days it it might be low. And the more aware you are of that, the better you'll be able to serve yourself and your teammates in this, um, in your role play. I know we're going a little long, so I'm going to do this, make this our last question. And it comes from Kenneth. What's your favorite homebrew item or mechanic so far in Of Mice and Men and Monsters? And just again, again, in case people are listening and don't know that lingo, homebrew basically is an item that you take and basically, for the most part, uh, make up yourself. Or you take mm-hmm. something that already exists and you tweak it to make it your own. Rich, this whole thing is like homebrewing classic literature. Yeah. Uh, that, that's a good question. Um, I have two. I have a tie. <laughs> so, okay. uh, so it's tied between uh, either homebrewing uh, the, the depressions, uh, the homebrewing the depression spell. Uh, so mm-hmm. when the characters went into the room with the, the first time you see the figure of Elizabeth, um, this in this case it is a stonework of her, a stone statue. Yeah, it was the teardrop um, room, right? Mm-hmm. The teardrop mm-hmm. room, and so you know that there is a spell called fear that somebody can cast, and you know if they fail the test on it, then they want to move away from that source of the fear, and they see something that just gives them nightmares, right? And so in this case, I wanted it instead to kind of go along with the, the, the through line of Elizabeth and Frankenstein's story. So instead, it's something that just makes you feel so much anguish that you don't want to go on. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's one homebrew that I really liked um, employing. And I got to use it because uh, Kimmy did not <laughs> pass her role. So, <laughs> so she had to um, 
I guess, role play that. And the other one I, I really loved was designing Victor Frankenstein's, uh, basically his Gundam suit, as it were. Um, his, his, you know, I, I was figuring out how do I mix machinery with magic. And so this suit of armor that he creates um, that casts specific spells that he's able to do um, as a spell casting focus, um, as well as, uh, you know, just basic attacks like go-go gadget <laughs> attacks that are meant to subdue you guys um, so that you can become more test subjects. Mm-hmm. And I know yeah, it was fun. for me, when I was building Bertram, I, I think now that this is like my fourth or, or so character building, it's fun to take things and tweak them a little bit or make them your own. Mm-hmm. And so I think my mm-hmm. favorite thing with Bertram so far is the flower and an herb, um, the, the flower and collar. herb collar behind his head. And that was that, that, and that was one of those kind of happy accidents that I just stumbled across. And I think mm-hmm. Uh, it, it fits him being a little fancy boy and trying to be proper and <laughs> and very elegant, he thinks, and fancy. But it also practically works into, if he was designed as a robot, like he was designed to be like a butler of sorts for mm-hmm. um, for his lord, it would make sense that, you know, he would have flowers for medicine or for cooking or, mm-hmm. you know, flowers to give, you know, to decorate the home with. And so I just thought that was really fun. It was decorative and it served more of a practical purpose. But also I love the kind of spells and things like, like the collar in this case, where it's only as good as you are creative. And so it can be used in so many different situations and so many different ways. And it really just depends on how creative you can get to mm-hmm. make the most of it. Like when I, I think Bertram used it when we first were fighting those halflings that we what we found, and he used it as intimidation. I think he he puffed out pollen from it to make him almost like a like he was puffing out like a like a like a blowfish, and yeah. I was like, oh, I, I, so I made that for intimidation. And I think homebrew really only works when you have also a uh, a dungeon master or a game master who wants to allow that and wants to play with you and work with you. And I know mm-hmm. that was one of those that I that I mentioned to Caitlin and she and that she was all on board for and you you can't make it break the game where it's too powerful and you gotta give it some restrictions to make it more fun. But yeah, I I, I appreciate that encouragement from you to run with that. I I will yeah, say that yeah. there's there's one other one that someone asked about. Um there was a very subtle reference. I think it's only happened once so far, maybe when you first first meet Bertram that he pulls out uh, a silver spoon with an F marked on it, I believe. And mm-hmm. that person wanted to know what it does. And I wanted to say what that was, but I think a, a lot of us, we tried to plant things in our characters that will come be, be answered later. So I will just say that I, I, I like, it's not as nuanced as maybe the, the, the flower and herb collar, but I thought it was really fun and I can't wait to, explain what that is in the future uh whenever that time comes about or whenever it seems natural to bring mm-hmm. that out but again mm-hmm. that's, that's something else that came from character first and what would make sense for him and then what would just be fun in the game yeah yeah it, it's it's great to reward ingenuity and to encourage imagination and i believe that allowing your players to homebrew aspects of their characters allows for that 
Mm-hmm. Exactly. Okay, well, I think that concludes this first book report episode. Thank you, Caitlin, for walking us through the history and knowledge and everything about Happy Frankenstein and it. also how you built this first amazing campaign, the storyline in of Mice and Men and Monsters. Uh, I'm, I, we've already been doing the Moby Dick storyline, and I know uh, I speak for Caitlin and all of us that I can't wait for you all to hear it. It's going to be uh, really exciting and so much fun. Yeah. We had so much fun making it. And <laughs> yes, it was fun to do it on, uh, to have an adventure on a ship. Yeah. Before before we go, I do want to say like when uh, a great resource for anybody who's interested in becoming a dungeon master or you know giving it a try. Um, there's a great resource, Dungeon Masters Guild or DMs Guild, and they have a bunch of different adventures and uh, plot devices and one shots on there um, that are free for you to use. And that was a great starting point for me when I was writing this first one because I had never written an original story before. And so, you know, I found one that gave me a good jumping off point. Um, it was, I, I, so I wanted to give them credit for that, that I got the idea for the beginning of this. Um, so that was from someone who calls himself author DM. So I thought it was very fitting there. Um, and then I just made it my own, but just to see how somebody was able to craft, um, a story to craft the beginning of, you know, like, here's your exposition, rising action and all the, the hit points or all the plot points of an adventure and then go from there. It was Mm -hmm. very, very helpful. Yeah. And I'd also say if you want to go read Frankenstein, which will be great and, uh, Mm -hmm. and would make us feel accomplished and that we've motivated someone to learn and read more, which would be great. (laughs) Uh, like Caitlin said, we're having to, for copyright reasons, we're having to use, uh, classic books that are in public domain. At least mm-hmm. that's what it's called in the States. So if you want to go find it, usually you can find them for free online. Kate, do you remember where you found some of these books electronically that people could go to? Was it like the, oh, I forget what it's called. It's the Gutenberg Project. Okay. You can find it. So, Gutenbergproject.com? Yeah, if, if you go into, uh, it should be Gutenberg.org, O-R-G. Okay. Um, but if you also just Google the Gutenberg Project, uh, and they have it not just for the U.S., they have them for each country according okay. to what the copyright laws are in that country. Because um, there's certain stories that are in public domain in Canada that are not in public domain here mm, yet, and okay. vice versa. Gotcha. So it it is um, it is a great resource, and you can read online for free. But you can also check it out from your local library, That's or if you really want to have your own copy to love and bend and mm-hmm. put post-it Mark, notes and everything else uh-huh. in yeah you can definitely go to a secondhand bookstore and buy it there too absolutely thank you kate and thank you so much mm-hmm. for listening again and thank you for everyone who reached out with questions and yes, for you guys who yes, were yes. listening um we just can't wait to interact more with you the listeners so again you can find us on twitter and instagram at omamam show And also, please send us questions about anything that we'll hopefully get to in these book reports. You can send those to omammamshow at gmail.com. So, yep. Thank you so much again for listening. We will have another regular episode next week. And that will be episode one, chapter one, rather, of Moby Dick. So until then. Every other Wednesday, guys. Every other Wednesday. Until then, we will see you all next time. Bye. Bye.
the Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. The first thing you need to know about the Vegas Sci-Fi Adventure podcast is that you're not just listening to someone tell you a story. You are stepping into a world. And Vega Rex, the woman at the center of this saga, is currently sitting at the top of it. This is not by accident. For millennia, the country Vega calls home has been carefully honing the skills of its state-contracted killers. And these so-called holy warriors have gotten real good at taking down the world's worst criminals. Or, as they would call it, cleansing. 400 kills into her career, Vega is the most decorated hunter there has ever been, and likely would have stayed that way if it had not been for him. An explosive encounter with a terrorist sets Vega on a path of revenge that is so thoroughly illegal that before this story is done, she will have risked it all, life, limb, and love, to satisfy her vengeance and keep her record of righteous kills perfect. My name is Ivoma Okoro, and I have so much more to tell you about this. Check out Vega, a sci-fi adventure podcast, anywhere you listen to them. Because, baby, I'm just getting started. <laughs>